way. Please pray with me. Lord, your law is perfect, reviving the soul. Your statutes are trustworthy, making the simple wise. Your precepts are right, they give joy to the heart. Ordinances are sure, all of them are righteous. Give us delight in your word. Help us to hear, to trust and to obey so that our words, thoughts and deeds may be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We're going to be reading from God's word. Um, It's taken from Isaiah chapter 6. And we're going to read the first eight verses. I'm not sure of the page number. Oh, yes, it is. 685, if you've got one of the Bibles you issued with when you came into church this morning. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, Lord, send me. Well, good morning, everybody, again. Good to see a few of you. Lovely to see you, Sue. We're continuing our vision series. Last week, we we started off and we looked at the big statement uh, that we had developed and we're now drilling into uh, what it means for us to be a church together. We're going to be talking about what's next for our church. This is what Vision Series is about. It's looking forward to what's next. We've talked about church planning, but I want to get a little bit more personal. I want to ask you, What do you want your Christian life to look like next year? What do you want your relationship with God to look like? What do you want your life of discipleship to look like? I want you to actually spend a moment, and if you've got a pen and a piece of paper, jot something down. I'm not going to put you on the spot. I'm not going to ask you. uh, But think about it. What do you want your life with God to look like next year? Spend just a moment.
You got something? It's a good question to ask because so often in these kind of series, we can talk about the big picture. And I gave you the big picture last week. This is what we're on about as a church. We've re recrafted our mission statement. This is our statement of the core of what we think we should be doing. We say that our mission is empowered by God's spirit, resting in his grace and for his glory. We make and grow disciples of Jesus Christ in fellowship with his people to bless a broken world. And at the core, we believe that God calls us to make and grow disciples of Jesus Christ. And each of us here, if our faith is in Christ, if we are trusting in him to set us right with God, we are disciples of Jesus. It's not that you have a garden variety Christian and then the the uber Christian is the disciple. Every Christian is a disciple of Jesus. So that's why I asked you, because we as a church are on about making and growing disciples. And so what do you want your discipleship to look like next year? One of the things about uh, making and growing Christians, it's kind of like, you know, there's... I'm not much of a baker, okay? I can cook things, but I'm pretty hopeless when it comes to cakes. And so, you know, for me, making a cake would be just grabbing ingredients, throwing them in a bowl, stirring them around, chucking them in the oven, and hoping that sometimes I might get something that looked like that on the other side. (laughs) Might be a little bit ambitious. But sometimes I think we as churches and we as Christians kind of go, I want to grow in Christ, but how? I want to grow... This church in Christ, how? Well, oh, we've got to, we've got to preach, we've got to pray, we've got, to, we've, we've got the ingredients. But what we're doing at Trinity Church, what we're doing is we're narrowing down. Instead of kind of randomly throwing all the ingredients in and giving them a stir and hoping at the other end, we get a disciple. What we've actually done is we've articulated what we think are five key purposes, five things that God wants realised in the lives of us individually and in the lives of our church together. These five purposes, uh, and if you know me, I love alliteration, I love things, and we've got five M's, okay? And I introduced you to them last week, and we're going to focus in on one of them for each of the next five weeks. And if you're going with Colin, don't think you're escaping because he's taking the five M's with him too, okay? Here they are together. We've got magnification down the bottom, loving and rejoicing in God. On top of that, we've got mission, our next M, that we would be both converted and converting. Membership, that we would both be belonging and welcoming. Maturity that we would be learning and growing and ministry, that we might be training and serving. We actually have those five M's, those five purposes. When you go through scripture, and this is what we're going to do over the next five weeks, you can find these purposes there in scripture. And if each of these are growing in our lives, being realized in our lives in increasing measure, I believe we will look back and see how wonderfully God has grown us. So this morning, we very deliberately put magnification at the bottom because I think 
Magnification is the thing upon which all the others stand or fall. Okay? So pay attention. Because the difference between having magnification there or not is the difference between being a Pharisee and being a disciple of Jesus. Uh, This is, and I've said it before, the engine that drives the Christian life. We want to see lives motivated not by guilt, not by duty, but by grace. We want to see people serving, not because they must, but because why wouldn't they serve this God? Why wouldn't they praise this God? Why wouldn't you give? Why wouldn't you pour yourself out? Because this God has poured himself out so extravagantly for you. Why wouldn't you come to him wanting to know more of him? Living a life, a life of devotion, a life of worship. And so we capture this purpose in this phrase. Our purpose in magnification is that we aim to develop passionate adoration, praise and thanksgiving amongst God's people as we respond to God's grace to us in Jesus. That's what we want to see. We want to see each of us and together as a church, and Colin wants to see the church at Woodcroft, be a church that is passionately adoring, praising and thanking God responding to his grace to us in Christ, overflowing, growing in worship. Got three points for you this morning. They don't all have the same letter. I was disappointed. Okay, this is what, going to synod, I didn't have time, okay? Designed for worship, encountering God, and if I'd worked hard, I would have made a way of getting F in the next one, but it's not, it's just called magnification. Anyway, why, why is magnification so important? Ultimately, because we as people are designed, we are designed for worship. Okay, how do we think of ourselves? If you've grown up in a Western culture, and pretty much most of us here this morning have, you've been influenced by uh, philosophers. You you may not think you've been influenced by philosophers, but you have. Uh, René Descartes, okay? He's very famous for saying, I think... Therefore, so you know, you know philosophy. Okay, you guys are smart. This is good. This is good. I think, therefore, I am. And so we have a picture in our Western society of people being primarily rational. So what, what, what's the biological species name for, for human beings? Homo sapiens, wise man. We are thinking beings, so we think, but we're not. Can I say? We're not. Because there is something else happening. Fundamentally, I don't think we are homo sapiens as much as we are homo religiosus. Work with me. I think we are not so much thinking people as we are loving people. We're not so much thinking people as we are worshipping people. We are driven and motivated by the things that we love. It doesn't mean that everyone goes to church, but it does mean that everyone worships. There's a fairly famous uh, speech that was given by a guy by the name of David Foster Wallace. This man was an atheist philosopher. 
and he wrote these words. He said, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. You may worship the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. You might worship Buddha. You might worship Allah. You might worship, take your pick. You might worship family. You might worship money. You might worship leisure, experience, education. Whether your gods are transcendent or material, everyone worships. We are oriented by our love. Our life is directed by what we love. That's what motivates us. That's what energizes us. That's what we strive for. It's like a compass. It directs us to the good life. We have a picture. If only we got that, then our life would be fulfilled. And so you might be striving. You might be striving for success at work. You might be striving for a relationship. You might be striving for lots of things. But that is the picture that you have of the good life and the way that you get it. We are directed by our loves. Now, I'm having a glitch here, Ethan. I'm not changing slides when it says I should be changing slides. So we've disconnected from the server. That's outrageous. That's better. That's what... I wanted to see that. Okay. I'm going to wave at you, Ethan, so you better pay attention. No falling asleep. If the slides aren't changing on time, okay, everyone needs to look and just point at Ethan. Okay? Is that okay? No. Let's not do that. (laughs) But we're oriented by our vision of the good life. It's what actually captivates us and motivates us. And some people who are older and wiser than me, uh, they saw this. There's a a fellow by the name of Thomas Cramner who lived in the 1500s. There he is. He was the first uh, Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury. And he said, said this little phrase that captures this brilliantly. He said, What our heart desires, our will chooses, and our mind justifies. What our heart desires, our will chooses, and our mind justifies. Let me... Let me explain this to you using my addiction to chocolate, okay? What my heart desires. I love chocolate. Uh, To to really stay away from chocolate, it needs to not be in the house. If I know it's in the house, I will find it uh, and I will eat it. And I have a real trouble that, you know, how many pieces of chocolate is enough, really? You know, anyone else out there that that finds, like, a block? Well, why stop there? Um, Really? (laughs) But my heart desires chocolate, okay? And so therefore I go, I I am going to hunt. I know that there's chocolate here somewhere, okay? And so I will spend time, if Karen's hidden it somewhere, uh, I've actually asked her not to buy chocolate for me. Uh, It's not not good. Uh, But uh, I will go and find it. And so the other day, I think people brought you chocolates for your birthday, didn't they? Okay, and I went and found them and generously put them out for you. Didn't I? Yes, that was good of me. Um, So I desired it. I wanted it. 
I chose it. And then I start telling myself stories about why I need it, deserve it, why it's the most logical thing in the world. You've never done anything like that, have you? It's not that I thought it. I loved it first. And my love directs my life. We are homo religiosus. We all worship. Another fellow picking up on these ideas, he says, we need to worship well because you are what you love. You are what you love and you worship what you love and you may not love what you think. We may say here this morning that we love and worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We worship the triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That is who we're here for. We may not worship, we may not love what we think. And so what we're doing as a church, as we're ordering our life around these purposes and we're talking about magnification, as we're thinking this through and as our leaders are working through this idea, their idea is to help us individually and as a church constantly come back to the one who alone is worthy of our worship. The one who alone can give us the good life, can give us eternity. The magnification purpose is about recalibrating our love. It's about worshipping and serving the one true God. It's not just singing. It's not just Sunday. It's a life of worship 24-7. Remember the the scribes and the Pharisees, they came up to Jesus and they said, what is the greatest commandment? Quiz time. They, They knew the answer. Jesus goes straight to the book of Deuteronomy. And he says, the greatest commandment is this, love, love the Lord your God. Love. The greatest command is to set our hearts to orient our lives around our worship of him. We are made to worship. And as we encounter God, we will worship him. Let me read to you again the passage that Rick read. In the year that King Uzziah died, that's about 740 BC, if you weren't aware, okay, Isaiah saw the Lord, high and exalted, seating on a, seated on a throne, And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. King Uzziah was one of the better kings of Judah. Pretty much close call for second place after King David. Judah enjoyed tremendous prosperity under his reign. You can imagine God's people feeling a little desolate as the great King Uzziah died. But Isaiah's in the temple and he sees the true king. 
he sees the king exalted and reigning and around him are the seraphs, the seraphim. Now, these aren't fat children with wings. Seraphim means the fiery ones. These are fiery spirits and they've got six wings and with two they are covering their eyes because they cannot gaze upon the Lord. Perfect creatures, sinless creatures, but still creatures. They will not look upon their creator. With two they cover their body so their creator will not see them. And with two they fly. They humble themselves before God and they call to each other, holy, holy, holy. Now, a little bit of Hebrew grammar. Okay. We had a little bit from uh, Stephen before and he could, have, he could have pulled it out a little bit more. Stephen, where's your Hebrew? You're not quite up with it. Okay. Um, you want to say something's uh, a truck, for example. We had, we had Stephen's idea of the truck. Okay. You just say truck. Okay. If you want to show it's a big truck, what you'd say is truck, truck. Okay. And if you had that humongous truck above which there is no other truck, what would that be? Truck, truck, truck. You guys are very good, okay? Okay, you are so smart. Truck, truck, truck. It is, it is what is grammatically known as a superlative. To say something is holy, to say something is really holy, it's holy, holy. To say that something is holy beyond comparison, it is holy, holy, holy. So you get this awesome picture. God on his throne... Isaiah can see his ankles. The temple is filled with smoke. These seraphs are circling, singing, calling to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The temple shakes. And what does Isaiah do? Verse 5. Woe to me. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. If he was Australian, he'd say, I'm stuffed. I'm stuffed. There's no plea for mercy. He knows, he has seen the perfection of God. He has seen God in his glory, in his majesty, in his holiness And he knows this is the prophet. This is God's commissioned messenger in God's temple. He sees God's glory and he says, there's no hope for me. I am ruined. He's devastated. He's in despair. But then God takes the initiative. One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal. In his hand, which he's taken with tongs from the altar. Maybe one of the leftover bits of the sacrifice that had been burnt upon the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. God takes the initiative. God takes the initiative. Sin is atoned for. And Isaiah is transformed. 
Verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And the prophet who said, Woe to me, I'm ruined, says, Here am I. Send me. Despair becomes devotion. Woe turns to wonder. Sin gives way to service. Isaiah encounters God and is transformed. And if you read later on in the chapter, you realise that Isaiah is given a ministry that no pastor would ever want. You'll be preaching, no one's going to listen. That's the mission he's given. They're never going to listen to you, Isaiah, because I'm going to close their ears, I'm going to harden their hearts. But Isaiah preaches, and he does what the Lord calls him to, because he has seen the living God. He has encountered God, and his whole life is oriented around him. 720 BC, if we were there, maybe we could have shared that experience with Isaiah, but does that happen for us? Is there a place where we see the glory and the holiness and the majesty of God? Where our finite, our sinful character is laid bare, all our pretense stripped away, Is there a place where God's justice and holiness and righteousness are seen in atonement and mercy and grace? There is, isn't there? The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So much more vividly than Isaiah saw. There we see a vision of holiness. In John, Jesus prays that the Father would glorify his name as the Son is crucified. We see God in his glory, his excellence displayed, and our worthlessness laid bare because as we see the Lord Jesus stripped beaten whipped rejected nailed to a cross as he cries out my God my God why have you abandoned me we know that Christ stood in our place We might think we've got it all together. But if we look at the cross, we see what Isaiah saw. And we must say with Isaiah, woe to me. Woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips. The cross destroys our pretense destroys our pride, takes away any sense that we can stand. We've got it together. Look, Jesus, how much we've done for you. Is it any coincidence that Isaiah 6 is Isaiah 6 and not Isaiah 1? 
Isaiah can't say, look, I've already been ministering for you. He sees himself as we see ourselves. But like Isaiah, we see that God makes the initiative. He takes the initiative. He makes atonement. Not just the holiness, but the mercy and grace and love of God. The cross should take us down to the depths. It should strip us bare. But then, as we see God's gracious initiative, as we see our sins atoned for, we should see our Father's hands reaching down to bless us, to forgive us, to bring us from death to life, to adopt us, that he might call us children of God, received not from our merit, but through Christ, through faith, freely given. One Christian author said, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and more accepted in Jesus Christ than we could ever dare hope. That's what Isaiah saw and that is what we see and that is what magnification is all about. It is about seeing the worth of God, seeing the excellence of God, seeing his holiness and his grace, his power and his love, and seeing that he alone is worth our worship. So what's magnification? There's our purpose. We aim to develop passionate adoration, praise and thanksgiving amongst God's people as we respond to God's grace to us in Christ. Worship is the engine that drives the Christian life. Not worship as in we're now going to have a time of singing that we might miscall worship. Singing is worship, but it's not just singing. Worship is 24-7. Worship is a life-oriented around love for God that shows itself in love for neighbour. This is where the power is found in the Christian life. This is where the strength to go on. This is where you find joy in sorrow, peace in chaos. This is the unshakable foundation under our feet. The wonderful grace of God to us in Christ. This is where we find it. And this is what we pursue. That we might know this more. What does it mean for us individually? It means that we must be people of the word. People of the gospel. Not just come along, hear a half hour sermon, hear some Bible readings, maybe go to a Bible study. But spend time each and every day hearing the promises of God. Reading the word of God. Knowing our God who has shown himself to us so richly. We are people of the word. And we are people of prayer. 
that as he speaks to us through his word, we speak to him. We come to our father with our daily needs. We come to the one who knows us and loves us and accepts us. As the writer to the Hebrews said, we approach the throne of grace to find help in our hour of need. We go to our Father who is there every step of the way. That is where we find the strength. We are people of the word. We are people of prayer. We want to know God better, not know more about him. It's good to study the Bible, but God is a person, not a book. And his word is living and active. We want to study that we might know him better. Brothers and sisters, as we think about this purpose, think about what you do individually to pursue this in your life. As a church, what do we do? One of the things we're just about to do is spend time sharing the Lord's Supper. Symbolic meal, bread, juice, that takes us in a very tactile way to the fact that our life, our very sustenance, is found in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We are people who celebrate that together. We are also people who sing. I don't know if you like singing. I had friends who used to turn up to church consistently 15 minutes late because we used to have one of those churches that had a big bracket of songs right at the front and they'd know that they could just walk in after that finished. Uh, I heard someone talk about um, they wanted their own church. It was called a nil song church, um, you know. Uh, I don't know what you feel like, whether you like singing or whether you don't. Can I say, I think the command is to worship. Not necessarily to sing. I think singing is a great gift, can I say. So don't beat yourself up if you're not a singer. But recognise that the command to worship, to love, is not optional. A friend of mine said when he spoke about singing, he said, you can think a thought or you can feel an emotion. But when you sing, you can feel a thought. It takes it and it makes it not just in the head, but also in the heart. Music lets us feel a thought. One of the things we strive to do here at Trinity Church Brighton, we don't try and create atmosphere. When you approach the throne of grace through faith, you do so on the strength, not of the smoke machine or the dim lights, but on the promises of God that we sing in the songs that we praise him with. So we pick our songs very carefully. We won't sing just any songs. There's lots of songs out there. You can listen to them. They're all on YouTube and Apple Music and all the other bits and pieces. But we are really careful because we want songs, songs that are calibrating our heads and our hearts around God's grace and glory. That's what we want. Now, this is purpose number one. There's four more to go to be continued.
Let's spend a moment. As I asked you at the start, what do you want your Christian life to be? What do you want it to look like? Think about answering that question. Just spend another moment, think back over what you thought at the start, maybe add to it. And then in just a moment, we are actually going to spend some time celebrating the Lord's Supper together. So, pause for a second, and then we'll share the Lord's Supper.